Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to PDX Executive Podcast. I'm excited to have my next guest, Rizwan Burke, who's the author of Startup, Myths and Models, What You Won't Learn in Business School. Just a little, uh, I'm going to read the bio from your, your book, uh, Riz, but so Riz is a uh, successful entrepreneur, video game pioneer, I want to get into that, uh, VC, also uh, the founder of the Startup Accelerator Play Labs at MIT. He's written, I believe, three books before this. So Riz, welcome. Thanks so much for, for joining. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. So, you know, I really want to get right into the, the book, but I think it's important for you to give a little overview of yourself and, you know, the reason why you wrote the book. Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I became an entrepreneur fairly early in my career, just after graduating from MIT. Uh, I did my very first startup and, you know, I kind of had this image in my mind, which I called uh, the proto-myth of entrepreneurship, which is that, you know, you come up with an idea, you go out, investors want to put money in you, you release a product, everybody likes the product and everything just goes up and to the right. right? Uh, and everyone's, you know, fat, rich and happy. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I found in, in my first startup and in many startups that I've invested in since that the road is never quite so straightforward. I mean, every now and then it is and, and sometimes that's all we hear about. Yeah. But there are many twists and turns along the way. Yeah. Uh, and I realize, you know, many of these were came from misunderstanding uh, what different parts of the startup adventure were all about. Mm -hmm. And so I really, you know, thought of this book actually many years ago, back in the 90s when I was doing my first startup. And then as I uh, created a startup accelerator a few years ago, and I found myself uh, teaching the same lessons again and again to entrepreneurs, I decided to, you know, to really get the book out there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the subtitle of the book was supposed to be what they don't teach you at Stanford Business School, <laughs> which is, you know, where I went to school, uh, yeah. business school a few years ago. But uh, uh, because it's published by Columbia, you know, they, they took that out of the subtitle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they said, uh, <laughs> hey, Riz, wait a second. So, and, and I love books like this in this general things of like, things that you wish you would have known, right? And when you started. And it's something here in Portland, uh, we've been talking a lot, I think the startup community is taking that mythology out and really like what it's really like, you know, to be an entrepreneur, not just like the glitzy up and to the right, raising money, big rounds, we're in the news. It's like breaking down some of these things. And you, you broke the book into... Um, yeah, different stages. And I mean, different, basically breaking down different myths and some of them popped out to me. I think we can go through uh, 
we could spend hours on the phone, but I would love for you to like pick out a couple that are really, I guess, top of mind for you that we can get into. Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned the, the stages. And so what I really did was I, I took the stages of the hero's journey, you know, from Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. you know, who analyzed all these ancient myths, you know, going up to, uh, you know, from Odysseus up to Lord of the Rings and mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars and, and came up with the stages. And I found that, you know, many of the stages of the entrepreneur's journey are similar. Uh, you know, the call to adventure, sometimes there's a refusal of the call, uh, crossing the threshold. You have these guys called threshold guardians mm. that are, you know, there. You have to kind of pass their tests sometimes to get going who are like VCs. Right. Uh, and then the road of trials, uh, which is a series of tests. And, and to that stage, I, I kind of made akin to uh, releasing the product, right? Because, you know, when I first started my, my first company, I thought, you know, building the product's difficult, but once I got it out there, you know, everything will be great. But the reality is that's when things become really challenging because your assumptions that you made aren't always true. Uh, now, sometimes things go better than expected. Sometimes things go worse than expected. Sometimes mm-hmm. things take longer than expected, but almost always uh, the assumptions that you had aren't quite right. And so you have to really be able to, just like, you know, these adventurers, you have to be able to, to kind of swing with the punches and, and figure out things along the way, you know, getting to the point of uh, getting the treasure, which could be an exit, mm-hmm. uh, which we talk about in the startup world, but uh, is just as much about changing yourself. Uh, and, and so, you know, reflecting on that journey was a key part of me writing this book, but also, you know, there's a stage called, uh, going to the underworld, right? Whether it's, you know, Odysseus literally going to Hades or in the Lord of the Rings, going through the mines of Moria. And I found that many entrepreneurs have a trip to the underworld where you have to face life and death, not so much your life and death, although that happens with health problems and other things, but life and death of the startup. Uh, and, and there's some dark times and there's a lot of stress that can come during that time as well. Uh, and so I thought it was important to, to, to have that be part of the book as well. What are some of your underworlds from your previous, uh, entrepreneur pursuits? I'm curious if you don't mind sharing some things you've gone through it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I've had some, some big successes and some, uh, you know, big failures as well. And, you know, going back to my very first startup, uh, you know, we were one of the hottest companies in, in Boston at the time. We had over 2,000 customers. And then suddenly, you know, we hit, we hit the wall where we thought, you know, we were going to do $4 million in revenue our second year. And we ended up doing close to $3 million. Now, that wasn't bad when you think about it because the previous year we'd only done 750 k So we had a 3x growth rate, which, you know, in, in, in business school would be a great growth rate. Yeah. But for a startup who projected $4 million, we were a million dollars short. So we were basically running out of money. Right. And so, you know, here I was 24 years old trying to figure out how am I going to make up this million dollar deficit? Uh, And then we had to go out and try to raise money. Um, And then, uh, you know, at one point uh, we couldn't make payroll uh, and it was taking much longer to, to complete the round and expected. And they said, okay, we'll lend you the money, but you have to personally guarantee it. Now I had zero assets at that point, right? (laughs) I mean, literally. Yeah. yeah, And I had started the company right out of school. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, should, should I try to save the company, but face personal bankruptcy if things don't, we eventually found a, you know, we found a a medium where I was able to use my stock as collateral. So it it ended up okay, but there were some really dark times. And then I was replaced as CEO. Mm. uh, And then this company, which had been growing and, you know, one of the myths in the book is better management causes growth. And it's sort of something that, you know, we think about, or it's one of those myths that are tossed around and myths uh, in the book have kernels of truth in them. So they're not untrue, but 
you have to really understand the, the reality behind the myth and when it applies and when it doesn't. And so too often, a, a startup that's growing, uh, investors will want to bring in an outside CEO because investors turn out uh, entrepreneurs turn out not to be great managers, right? There's a lot of chaos. Mm. You might think of it as controlled chaos, but usually when companies in growth mode, um, you know, entrepreneurs are making decisions on their gut left and right. right. And so you know, they want to bring in somebody who we used to call, you know, the gray hair, the gray hair polo work shirt. Sh- sh- the, um, the adults, polo, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> polo shirt wearing guys, the adults mm-hmm. in the room. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, it's good because it introduces processes, budgets, uh, you know, quality control gets better. Uh, management is even done better. So you might say the company is better managed. The problem is when that happens, the company often stops growing (laughs) because you lose that dynamic nature of an entrepreneur saying, hey, here's an opportunity that's adjacent to ours. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that ends up being the one that could have made the company. But, you know, when you put on your business school hat, you're thinking, what's the ROI? What's the likelihood this is going to succeed? We don't want to invest in it. This is so important because I just was listening to... uh, another podcast where this topic came up uh, you know around uber which you know, think of what you will of travis uh the their, their founder and now they have the new ceo it's like the the podcast host is making the kind of the case what you said is when you replace the founder you kind of lose the appetite for these big swings right you kind of right so i'm curious i mean we're um kind of deviating a little bit from your book, but it's an important topic. I mean, as someone who invests in startups has an accelerator, um, I assume you're, you're, you think you, we should keep the founder in place as long as we can because they can't, they have that currency as the founder, right? Or when's the appropriate time to bring in someone? That's- right. I think that's really the, the question. It's not so much, you know, should you keep the founder? Should you bring in an outside CEO? Yeah. Like when I got my very first term sheet from a venture capitalist back in the 90s, it literally said in the term sheet, within 120 days, you will bring in a new CEO that we approve of, right? <laughs> oh, wow. So they weren't even, you know, cagey about it. Mm-hmm. But back then that was the playbook. And the playbook was, uh, you know, it's a technical founder, you bring in a business guy um, to kind of manage growth. Uh, but I think what happened was a few years ago, they did some um, analysis here in Silicon Valley and they found that uh, founder-led companies tend to do better. Um, and there are many examples, whether it's Microsoft, Facebook, right. Dell, um, Oracle. Uh, and when they bring in an outside founder, that, that growth, I mean, outside CEO, the growth tends to slow down. Uh, it's not always a bad thing, but sometimes you, you go swing back and forth, like with Twitter, right? You know, they brought in. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then they had to take them away. And this this happens a lot. It happened with Zynga. So I've been in the you know mobile gaming yeah, industry. Yeah. And, you know, Mark Pincus was the CEO. Things were growing. They had the IPO. Then looked like things were, were stagger, uh, stagnating. So they brought in another CEO. And then Pincus came back, just like Dorsey with Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so you, you kind of swing back and forth between, oh, my God, things are too chaotic. We need a real manager in here, too. <laughs> oh, my God, we're not growing. We need right. to bring the entrepreneur back in <laughs> because right. they're going to figure out what, what, what to do. And so, you know, one of the myths in the book that's one of my favorites is uh, the myth called focus, 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 right? Now, this is advice that I've gotten all, you know, many times and I've even given the advice. Uh, but uh, the problem with that is you develop a tunnel vision, right? And sometimes the big opportunity is actually next door. Mm. It's not right where you're focused. Uh, and so I'll give you an example. Um, I was part of a company called OfferPal, which was in the Facebook gaming space, which okay. is now called TapJoy. It's one of the biggest uh, you know, game advertising companies out there. Yeah. And we started off with a consumer-facing product 
uh, that was supposed to be on this new thing, new platform called Facebook, where you could develop apps. Uh, and so it was kind of an, an app or a widget back in those days. But turns out there was an opportunity to help people that were making Facebook games monetize uh, their games, right. which was a B2B model, right? A B2B to C model, if you will. Um, and so one of the founders said, hey, let's just take this little prototype we built and let's go show it to one of these guys and, and see if it works. And, you know, so I just got on Facebook and sent a message to, uh, you know, a guy who had just graduated from Stanford and created a game called Fluff Friends. Okay. And I said, hey, do you want to try this thing to monetize your game? And so we met uh, in Palo Alto and he said, yeah, sure, I'll give it a shot. Right? This was a, a new industry at the time, uh, the whole social gaming and people weren't, uh, nobody was sure if people would would play games for, uh, and actually give real money to play right, these free-to-play yeah, games, right, yeah. for virtual currency. Well, to make a long story short, that business ended up growing to $100 million, you know, within a couple of years, right, which was one of the fastest growth rates I've seen. But it wasn't exactly what we had pitched. So, it, it, notice we didn't ask for permission. Mm -hmm. If we had asked our investors, they might have said, focus, focus, focus. Right. Right. Now, th the flip side of that is you can't be so defocused that you're doing too many things that nothing gets done. And so, the secret behind the myth, so as I said, these myths are complicated. And sometimes people get frustrated because they want just, uh, you know, one, two, three, what do I need to do to make my startup successful? I want the yeah. formula. And I guess if there's an underlying message of this book is that different circumstances require different solutions. <laughs> and so you have to really understand and have mental models for how these things work. Uh, but so the secret behind that myth is focus, explore, focus, right? So you have to be willing to focus for a period of time. You have to be willing to explore for a period of time. And then when you find something that works, you have to focus again on, on really making that grow because yeah. it's pretty challenging to, to really manage growth like that of once you found something that works. Yeah, I love that advice and that kind of that mindset because you, know, you hear both things. Yeah, focus, but then you know, get as many revenue streams as you can, but then it's kind of scattered. So um, that's important. A couple other, one particular um, myth you, you mentioned in the book was, you know, starting a company with your friends. I know you mentioned you had to start your first maybe company or one of the early ones yep. you started with a couple of your good friends. Uh, yep, my was, uh, best friend and my brother. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so, in, yeah. but you were surprised, you know, down the road to, to hear about people who did start companies with their friends and then, you know, go through breakup, you know, basically it's a breakup and they hate each other and talk about that. Cause I think that's really common, but also it's difficult, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's a really interesting situation. This happened to me a few years ago where there were two startups that I was an investor in and you know, one of them was down in LA. They were a, one of the first Bitcoin exchanges. Okay. Um, and so I went down there and these guys had been friends and they started this company and it had been growing during one of the Bitcoin phases. And then, uh, Bitcoin always kind of goes up and then it kind of comes down and stabilizes. And it was during one of those phases where raising money was hard mm -hmm. for that. And these guys weren't talking to each other because <laughs> they had very different visions for what they wanted to do with the company. And so I met with them both and I was thinking, what's going on here? Like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and pretty much I, I wondered, you know, had these guys not been friends and they, they had been friends. And so I was scratching my head because my experience in starting a company with, with my friend, my best friend, my old MIT roommate, and my brother was that things actually worked out because we had a very similar mindset. Yeah. But the same thing happened with another company where the CTO just got up and left. And he'd been not just a CTO, but a CTO and co-founder mm. and leaving the CEO in a lurch. And so again, I wondered you know, what was going on. And he said, yeah, we'd been friends. And what I realized was they had been friends, but they had never worked together <laughs> before the startup. And so that's really important. I mean, the, the, the prototypical example of this is 
uh, going back in Silicon Valley to, to Hewlett and Packard. Mm-hmm. Turns out they spent a year working on, I think it was Bill Hewlett's garage, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in, in one of their garages, right, together before they actually founded the company. And same thing with Apple, right, with Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. They had worked together before uh, on several projects, and so had Bill Gates and Paul mm-hmm. Allen. And so, uh, you know, the key is is I wouldn't recommend just starting a, a business with your friends. But if you're thinking about it, it's good to do an actual professional project together. It's kind of like dating before you get married, right? right? Yeah. And, and see how people react in stress because it's very different than how they react when everything is just an idea phase, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and also, I recommend sometimes it not being a paid project because mm-hmm. then you'll start to see as an entrepreneur, sometimes you go, you know, many months in the beginning where you don't have any, any salary. And so, you know, are they willing to focus on this because they really uh, believe in it? Right. Uh, or are they, you know, so concerned with finances, which is not a bad thing. I mean, if you have financial issues yeah. and you have a mortgage, maybe you should be concerned about that and not necessarily jumping into a startup full time. So, you know, I, I encourage people to, to, to think about that. So that's, you know, one of the myths. The, the other related to that is just, you know, how many founders should you have? in your startup, mm-hmm. right? And so I've given many examples of kind of two founders, but a lot of times, uh, you know, having another person who comes in shortly thereafter is not a bad way to go. I mean, even with Microsoft, with yeah. uh, Bill Gates and Paul Allen, they had, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Steve Ballmer, who was a friend of uh, one of theirs, who was in business school at Stanford, and he quit after the first year to join them, and he became kind of that third leg of the stool. Right. But I've often seen teams that are like five, six people. And even in our accelerator, we had it. And I said, you know, I've never seen a team with five or six founders where they all stayed with the company. And so Mm. you need to be really careful and you need to spread out the vesting over a much longer period of time. One of them didn't listen to me. And sure enough, within a year, half the team had left. The equity table was all messed up. And so they ended up having to shut the the startup down because they couldn't get agreement on on things. And so, you know, I think you have to be careful either way. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that 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 co-founder conflict and you know, I've seen it a lot, unfortunately. So I think that's really good advice the date before, you know, you marry and, and work on projects together. And when I've, in the book I've got these startup tools, which include some yeah. scenarios for founders they can walk through together uh, and find out what motivates them, right? Different founders have different motivating factors. Mm-hmm. Some are motivated by money. Some are motivated mm-hmm. by long-term wealth versus short-term money. Some are motivated by technology. Some are motivated by building an empire. Mm-hmm. So, uh, some are motivated by being an expert in the field and being out there talking about things. And so uh, once you go through different scenarios, you can figure out early on if, if you're aligned. Uh, you know, what would happen if you had to go five years without any funding whatsoever? You know? right. Well, that's not something a lot of guys think about because they just read TechCrunch and assume they're going to get $2 million <laughs> in funding. <laughs> yeah, they're going to you know? crush it. And, um, and I, that's really important. I mean, when you were doing your accelerator work, I assume this is an exercise you, you make folks go through, right? Yeah, that's right. So I kind of, we, I have this expectations tool in there, which is an exercise. And then I have this scenario tool and there's no right answers but it's like if you went through this scenario uh, how would you feel would you be like thrilled or would you hate it yeah. right and uh, and sometimes this you know it's also about how you pivot the company uh, there's a really successful company in the book uh, called uh, GNIP GNIP that sold to Twitter for 175 million dollars and I had interviewed one of the founders um, uh, Judd uh, Valesky, and he mentioned that his co-founder, you know, they went for about a year, and the original B two B, their the original business model didn't work, mm. right? And so they ended up switching to more of an enterprise software model. And turns out his co-founder just didn't want to do that, 
right? Mm. And and he and he gives them credit for saying that you know that wasn't what he wanted to do. So even though the company was quite successful, they parted ways along the way. Uh, but it's important to understand you know why you're in this and and what you like to do, what you're good at, because it's a long journey, like like yeah. Lord of the Rings. You know, it's it's a pretty life transforming journey. It's a lot of self reflection and, and self inquiry, uh, which. I'm, I, me personally didn't start doing until recently, but I, I think it's hard when you're maybe like you said, in your early twenties, starting a company to do that work. So that's really great to have a book like this, but also folks like you that are, you know, um, advising startups and in the VC world to, to, to really say, to do these kind of, this kind of work. Yeah, because sometimes there are hidden assumptions and beliefs, yeah. you know, that are creeping into your startup life, whether you want them to or not, right? I always say that a startup is a reflection of the personalities. Mm. Um, and turns out this is true even for bigger companies. I mean, if you work for Oracle, even after their IPO with Larry Ellison, you'll notice a certain personality or, or Salesforce with Mark Benioff. Turns out the personality reflects all the way down and it's particularly true in the early days and so you know another, another myth in the book that's one of my favorites is um, uh, is, is that entrepreneurs often become bad managers and, and the reason is they think one of these two things they think I could do it faster myself right uh, or they think uh, you know management is stupid I need to get out of the way and let people do their jobs right mm -hmm. and so it turns out both of these are underlying belief structures which lead entrepreneurs to either become a micromanager Right? When you think you can always do it better yourself, uh, you're like, it's sort of like telling the, the, whore, the old Buddha story about the horse and the rider and the rider is trying to help tell the horse every step to take, right? That doesn't work. You have to point the horse in the right direction. Right. Or, you know, there's that funny scene in that movie Office Space, right, where the manager just comes up with his little <laughs> coffee cup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that'd yeah, be yeah. great, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and turns out there's, particularly with engineers like myself, there's this underlying belief that management isn't really work, right? Mm -hmm. We engineers do the real work. And if the managers would just leave us alone, we could get things done. And so then when they become managers, and this happened to me when I became a manager, I just left people alone for a while. Mm. But there's a problem with that too. And the problem is that sometimes employees will end up making decisions that are not aligned with what everybody else is doing. And that can cause you many months of, of heartache and pain. And also it's frustrating for them. It, I kind of like to use the analogy of the waiter. You know, there's the waiter that comes up to you every, every 15 seconds and says, do you need anything? Do you need anything? And keeps yeah. interrupting your conversation. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a waiter that's never there when you need to refill your water. Uh, and, and that's the difference between the micromanager and the absent manager. And so you know, the reason entrepreneurs become these is, is as much about their own belief systems, you know, and, and that's where the introspection comes in as much as do this or do that, right? right. You can always have uh, things that they're supposed to do. But I, I think that's the important part of it is to have the right perspective. Well, shifting a couple, I'm, I'm interested to get your perspective, just where we're at in the world. You know, it's June 2020 with the pandemic and it's affecting the, you know, the capital markets, putting on your invest, you know, investor hat. Um, what are you kind of looking, what's the state of kind of the VC uh, market right now? I mean, are, do you feel like there's a tremendous amount of opportunity? Are you pausing? I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do feel there is a, a good amount of opportunity and there almost always is whenever there's a slowdown. Yeah. Uh, but there's always a little bit of pain first, right? And so I remember in 2008, um, you know, that was actually when, when I was at business school. So I wasn't actually doing a startup, but I had many friends that were. And what happens is that investors tend to stop investing in new things for a little while, uh, 
while they kind of tend to their existing portfolio, yeah. right? And so they need to make sure that their existing companies have enough money because it's going to be hard to go out and raise a new round for some period of time. But then it really depends on the fund, right? Because the many funds were raised in the last few years. And those funds, you know, are actively investing. And, you right. know, I'm a venture partner at a fund called Griffin Gaming Partners, which is a video game fund. And, okay. you know, they're actively investing in, in, in video game companies. Um, and I'm a, also a venture partner at IDG Ventures, which is now called Ridge Ventures. And mm. They do more B2B software and they're also actively investing. Uh, but But the first step for any investor in this scenario is to go back and look at your existing companies. And that's where I think a lot of new startups get crypt up because they were used to having so many people ready to invest. And this is true for angel investors too. I mean, mm -hmm. at the beginning of this crisis, uh, you know, I've done quite a few investments over the years, many of which were angel investments okay. and some of which were VC, but many of those came back to the angels to try to do a bridge round. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, even if you're not investing that much money, uh, you still are thinking, okay, well, do I put another, $45,000 into this yeah. company or do I invest in a new company? So it's true of the VCs who are investing millions of dollars, but it's also true of angels who are investing maybe tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And how, I mean, not to name any names of companies in your portfolio, but how are some of them doing? I assume it's like some of them are thriving and some of them are hanging on. But I, I uh, Yeah, it really depends on, on the yeah, industry and, right. and what they're doing. And so, you know, I mean, I've, ha I've had profitable companies that suddenly saw their revenue forecasts, you know, in the yeah. enterprise space uh, come down quite a bit. And so, you know, that's obviously a tricky situation. Uh, but, you know, there are companies that are more like in the gaming world, it's actually not a bad place to be because people are yeah, <laughs> playing a lot yeah, more video games. I mean, they're sitting at home. Yeah. And so, you know, with consumer oriented companies, it's not necessarily uh, that bad. Uh, I, I think that the harder part is if a company was, doesn't have enough money for to really get the product launched and they were expecting to raise you know a seed yeah. round that's the hardest part actually i think companies that are a little further along um you know they'll be okay yeah. well you know where you're you're at you're in mountain view you're in the heart of you know silicon valley um we're up here in portland you see the announcement of, of Facebook saying they're going to start doing not just remote work but work from anywhere like you can move you know, what's your thoughts on how that's going to affect just startups, the capital markets, and, and like specifically markets like Portland that are very mid-market towns, you know, we're smaller in Seattle, but like a, you know, maybe a Denver too. Um, is that ultimately good for talent and investing companies? Or yeah, I think so. I think, you know, uh, towns like Portland um, will benefit from this uh, because, yeah, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, I live right down the road from Google, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we have like 40,000 people <laughs> who are normally there's huge traffic jams and yeah. there's a lot of frustration with traffic and prices. And even though everything's kind of been paused, uh, things are starting to open back up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, many of these tech companies are realizing that they don't need to have people physically in an office right. to uh, be productive. And so that allows talent to really be anywhere. And I, so I think it's an acceleration of a trend that we were already seeing. I mean, a number of my companies were working virtually already. I mean, there's okay. the offshore component, right? Mm -hmm. There's usually an offshore component and there's usually a headquarters in the U.S. And, but then there's other people who are living in different cities, whether it's Portland, Denver, Toronto, yeah. uh, Phoenix, 
Uh, and they, they, you know, wherever they can find talent, companies have been going there over the past few years. So now I think it, it, it's kind of opened the doors to that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people have been frustrated with, with the Bay Area. And I remember once I was flying from Portland uh, back to, uh, to San Jose here, and there okay. was a guy sitting next to me who turned out to be an entrepreneur who had lived in Mountain View, and he had moved his company to Portland. Huh. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, how do you like having a company up there? And he goes, yeah, it's great. You know, my employees actually stick with me. <laughs> like, I don't think we've lost an employee <laughs> in like yeah. five years. Whereas in Silicon Valley, you know, every two years, you know, people are like shuffling between one right. company and whatever the next hottest thing is. Yeah. Uh, but I think for quality of life purposes as well, you know, there are a lot of better places um, that people might want to be. I and mean, I personally like it here, which is why I'm, I'm, I'm still here. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I've spent time in Boston and here, which are kind of two two startup hubs, but mm -hmm. seeing more and more virtual teams anyway. So this is, I think, going to accelerate that. We're really, wherever the talent is. You know, right. Yeah. What's the downside to it? Because you look at like a Twitter who announced, they're, I don't even, uh, this might be extreme of me thinking this, but it sounded like they're not even going to have an, an office. It's going to be totally distributed. So Right. You know, well, so, the, the, yeah. the real estate market is going to suffer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing. But if you think about like Apple and their, their giant headquarters, right? The, the spaceship headquarters. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, part of the reason why was Steve Jobs liked to encourage kind of this serendipity yeah. of people walking around and coming up with ideas. And I remember at Pixar, yeah. there was an element of that as well. Like he hit their office space over in, I forget where, in Oakland or in East Bay somewhere, uh, where, you know, they had designed it in such a way to make it easy with the central area that everybody had to go through yeah. so that there was more cross-pollination. So there's there's definitely downsides on, on, on that side of it. But I think just in terms of straight productivity, I think what these companies are realizing is that people can be productive without mm -hmm. having to be there all the time. And there's probably a lot of wasted time that happens you know, in offices and in meetings. And so it's like, okay, do we really need to have the meeting? <laughs> then yeah. we will. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, I, I, I run a, an event series here for executives in Portland and, you know, my, I, I do a lot of gathering people and that serendipity, that face-to-face -face is so important, you know? So I, it's, yeah. I, I just don't, I'm curious to see where it's getting. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. the same way. I prefer face-to-face -face yeah. when possible, but, you know, I noticed, so I haven't like actually run a startup in a few years now um, uh -huh. just because I've been investing and helping yeah. others. But my old co-founder, you know, he had started a company that's done reasonably well, but I, I started to notice around 2016 that he rarely, he rarely met investors in person, mm. you know, uh, right away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, all his meetings were already going virtual and, you know, and I, I was used to, if, if I'm going to ask somebody for millions of dollars, I should meet with them. Yeah. Uh, but turns out that wasn't necessary. And so I think that transition has already happened, but you're right. There is a lot of serendipity and there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, cross-pollination of ideas that happens in face-to-face -face meetings. And so mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to completely go away. Uh, I don't think office spaces are going to go away. Right. But I, I think there is an element of not needing so much. I mean, honestly, most of my startups have never had big offices anyway. We've just mm -hmm. been distributed and people, we usually have core small teams, right. you know, maybe 10 people in the office, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or 20 people maximum. And then the rest are in different countries or in different cities. Yeah. yeah curious to see what, where, where it goes. Have you invested in any companies yet that you have not met the founders in person just over virtual? 
Uh, yeah, I have actually. Oh. I uh, I did recently. Yeah, um, uh, and but partly it was because of the lockdown, but also partly because yeah. it was in Boston, and I happened to be <laughs> okay. here and I haven't been traveling back there. And so you know, since I'm usually, I used to go back and forth a lot more. Uh, I'd meet. I just wait till I was going to be there next right. and meet them in person. Uh, but I think for, you know, a, a full venture round, eventually you're going to have to meet them as an angel investor. I think, you know, it's, it's much easier to say, okay, yeah, I'll invest mm -hmm. in that guy. Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the VCs I interviewed in the book was um, uh, a VC named Randy Komisar and he's a partner at Kleiner Perkins mm -hmm. wrote a really famous book called the monk and the riddle, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, he says he, he always likes to meet founders multiple times during the process. And the reason is he wants to see not just how they'll act. I mean, that's important too. You never know if somebody's having a bad day or a good yeah. day. Uh, but more important than that, he wants to see if they'll learn. In fact, he even says that's when he brings up an objection, he wants to see how they address it the next time. Do they dismiss it out of hand? Which kind of shows maybe being a little too close-minded. Yeah. Um, the flip side of that is I think you can be, you can go to either extreme. There are founders who are like, nope, I've got it all figured out and I'm not listening to you. Uh, and then there are founders who might just, uh, you know, wherever the wind blows, <laughs> yeah. you give them a suggestion to change their business and they're like, okay, if you'll invest, I'll do that. And th that doesn't make any sense either. That's not a founder you want to invest in. You want to invest in a founder who will take your, your suggestions seriously, will weigh them based upon what they know. They're the experts in the market, the founders mm -hmm. are, right? Not mm -hmm. the investors. So the investors might make suggestions, but those are not orders. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of first-time founders get into. It's like, oh, my investor wants me to do this. I feel like I have to do it. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. You need to do what's best for the company because in the end, the investor is going to judge you based on whether the company is successful or not, not whether you listen to him on X or Y or Z. In fact, that's why sometimes, although you know, don't say this as an investor, you know, sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes you as an entrepreneur have a hunch, but it's a hunch, so it's hard yeah. to convince people. Yeah. You don't have, uh, you know, the, the kind of left brain logic yet. It's still a right brain um, gut intuition that there's something going on here. And, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book is when I was back at, at, at Stanford Business School, you know, we had a class on decision modeling, mm -hmm. and it was basically a class about spreadsheets. And, mm -hmm. and you design these very extensive spreadsheets, and you plug in all the numbers on the left, and you get all these numbers on the right, and you say A, B, or C, which one is best? And you just choose the one that's best. And I remember raising my hand, and I said, well, what if you change the number all the way in the left? Because, well, then the numbers change. So, well, how do you know what to put in there? Because, well, that's where you have to use your intuition as a manager. <laughs> and yeah. it turns out in big companies, you can look at, you know, history, right? So the history. But if there's one thing that's true in startups, it's that the past does not equal the future mm -hmm. because most startups don't have much of a history uh, for their market. Uh, and so I think this leads to a difference between startups and, and how we teach about business in general. Yeah, and I, lo and I love this book because of that. And a couple of things, you know, I went to business school too. And, and through all this and through people like you that are, you know, putting resources like this out there, I mean, I know you went to you, you, MIT and, and Stanford so is kind of the top tier. What's the status? I mean, what's the value of business school now? And I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but I yeah. mean, yeah. you know, obviously we're in our home. There's a lot of resources. Like, what's your advice to even entrepreneurs? Like, I kind of want to go to business school now. Like, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there is there are pluses and minuses, you know, yeah. just like in most things. And so with uh, – uh, business school for entrepreneurs. I mean, th th there's a lot of uh, people that you will meet in business school. Right. Uh, 
Uh, and so honestly, I think that's the, the number one benefit of going to business school. Now, I think business school struggles with this idea that, uh, you know, of the art and the science of management, right? Yeah. They want to turn everything into a science because that's how you teach, right? In finance, you can perhaps do that because it's all about mathematics. Um, but when it comes to entrepreneurship, you kind of have to teach by doing. And so more business schools do have classes on entrepreneurships. They'll teach you how to write business plans and put together PowerPoints and case studies of other entrepreneurs. But really, you have to learn by doing, I think. Uh, so I would say for an entrepreneur going to business school, the biggest benefit will be that you may meet people you want to start a business with. That some of your classmates may go on to become venture capitalists. Right. More so than what you actually learn. And that's where, I, you know, that's why I wrote this book is here's kind of how it really is. And here's kind of the hard, tough lessons that you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you wish you had learned. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing is we, before we kind of uh, close here is, plan, you know, going off of that in the network you might meet, um, how important it is to surround yourself when you're starting a company with a peer group, uh, whether it's a, getting a coach or just continually learning, uh, whether it's, you know, through the VC you have, maybe they have advisors. Because I would think that is like a huge huge plus to, to kind of work on yourself continuously. Yeah, I, I think it actually does help a lot, uh, you know, because being an entrepreneur in, in some ways you're never alone because you're busy yeah. with your team almost all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, and you're usually on call 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, it can be very lonely to be a CEO. Uh, and so having a peer group of other CEOs. So in, in my startup accelerator, we used to have a peer group every week of the CEOs and the CTOs. Mm. And part of the reason is to be with people that are going through similar problems that you're going through. And sometimes the problems you're going through are being caused by your investors or your co-founders. Mm. And it's important they're not there, right. right? So you feel like you can talk honestly, uh, but also you can get a good perspective. Like I, I used to have a CEO peer group during my first startup. And I think we used to meet once a month back then, but uh, I used to call it my CEO therapy group, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and sometimes, you know, I think I was having problems and I'd go in and see this guy who has trouble making, uh, you know, making payroll next month and he turned out to be a very successful entrepreneur, but I, it gives you a perspective on things and usually mm -hmm. they have pretty good advice just, just by listening to what other people in your situation are doing. I think you can learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and having mentors obviously is important as well. Uh, but, you know, you may or may not have the right mentor at the right time and that's kind of an organic process. Right. Uh, but yeah, I do think it's important to have a, a peer group uh, to learn from. Well, Riz, Separate thanks. from your investors. And <laughs> yeah, no, and, I, and I, I think it's, I, that's something I help facilitate here locally where it's not entrepreneurs, but no matter where you are in your career, I think it's important to have that. So um, it's great to hear hear you say that. So where is the book is Startup Myths and Models. Uh, it's available now. So thanks for, for coming on. And are you working on another book or taking a pause? Uh, I, well, yeah, taking a pause uh, while I'm out talking about this book. But yeah, I, I will be writing another book, uh, which is a sequel to my first book, okay. <laughs> which was called Zen Entrepreneurship. Mm. Uh, and you, you know, people can go to my website at zenentrepreneur.com. And there's actually some bonus myths uh, some free free chapters you can download from Startup Myths as well that, that didn't necessarily make it into the book because there's so many. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll probably start uh, writing again soon. I usually take a break uh, when yeah. a book is released. I know, this just came out, so I'm just jumping the gun. <laughs> but hey, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on. This is great. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. 
And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well. 